This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio. The title of the book, Leading the Way, Behaviors That Drive Success. And the author is Paulette Ashland. And Paulette joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Paulette. Hello, Steve. Great to have you with us, Paulette. Leading, that is a role that a lot of people struggle with, and yet it's so important to have that confidence, I guess, and learn how to develop that confidence because, as you put it, behaviors that drive success, that's what you are all about. You're helping us understand how to attain those right behaviors for success. That's exactly right. And to begin with, we probably need to have a good definition of leadership because there are so many of them across the world. And one of the best quotes I've heard is that a leader is someone who can get people to do things voluntarily, the things that must be done. So how does a leader do that? It's through behavior and through actions and communication that inspire people to want to follow them. So it's, it's a way to motivate and inspire people. And the book describes behaviors that are pretty standard in the Western corporate world that drive success from individual contributorship all the way up to CEO level. And I love what you emphasize right at the beginning of your book, right in the introduction. We all know the, the great name of Vince Lombardi. What a great leader and a demander of excellence. And as he put it, leaders aren't born, they are made. So it just takes a lot of hard work and you have to have a model. And that's what you're all about. Exactly. Leading the way the book describes consistent leadership principles that have driven people to success. And it's broken into different chapters beginning with follow the leader. There's a concept called fishbowl leadership that I write about in the book. And that is once you're a leader, you're basically in the limelight. You are in a fishbowl. You're a mini celebrity and people are watching and listening. They're watching your every move, your every behavior and listening to your every word. So the book goes on to describe the behaviors that actually motivate people to follow their lead in a productive way, not in a manipulative, mean, political way, but in a way that inspires people to have common goals and be very productive. So Vince Lombardi said, yes, it's, it's a hard thing to do and you have to work at it. So some, there are some people who think that leaders are born, so there are some assumptions in the book. There are assumptions that we're talking about successful people who are technically competent, who are level-headed, and know what they're doing. And then we build on those competencies and describe the behaviors that can drive them to further success. So you have to have the right attitude in order to realize that you can change your behavior at any time, at any age, at any level of experience. You can always be modifying that behavior to get the best results. 
Right. It's a matter of being motivated to change. And first and foremost, you must know what to change. So that's why the first chapter in the book is on self-awareness. And we give tips and steps on how to gain self-awareness, anywhere from getting, taking self-assessments and reviewing the results to asking people how they're being perceived. There's a lot of talk today about the younger generation, the millennials, all the challenges they're facing in this very fast-paced, confusing world. And, of course, at the same time, technology is used by them pretty much exclusively in about everything they do. How do we help millennials become the best leaders they can be? I'm so glad you brought up the millennials. Initially, the book had targeted leaders and aspiring leaders who had work experience. But as the book has been well received, some of my clients and client companies have said they're using the, the book and its principles to coach millennials. So millennials are idealistic, highly motivated, and creative. They also believe in a meritocracy. That is, they expect to be noticed, recognized, and rewarded for their results. And we've also noticed that they don't like to play political games. They shun hierarchies. And at the same time, they confuse some elements and essentials of relationship building with unattractive politics. And thanks to social media, and because they are the generation that has practiced relationship building the least, they seem lost when it comes to navigating connections and building bonds within the workplace. The book, Leading the Way, provides a roadmap for behavior, if you will, behaviors that can help them drive their, their careers and success. So it covers behaviors to increase self-awareness, self-control, empathy, empathy not to be confused with sympathy and compassion, but really to understand what people are thinking, humility, integrity, personal stewardship, especially communication, global intelligence, and acting. The millennials have hidden behind their technology and their social media. They've had a different definition of friendship and relationship building. It's been based on the number of likes they get on social media, for example. And they don't always seem to know, when they're dropped into the working world, how to nurture relationships to be more productive and effective. So hopefully the book will show them some steps, including how to communicate with other people verbally and in person. So important, even in this high-tech world that we can, as you just said, you know, be able to have face-to-face conversations and feel confident and be able to have them be the most effective. And this self-awareness that you've already talked about really lends itself to help people to develop that confidence. And one of the things that you emphasize in your book is empathy. Very key, isn't it, to being a leader? Absolutely. And the way I define empathy is the ability to understand what people are thinking and feeling and the ability to predict their behaviors. It's almost like reading people's minds. And imagine how powerful that could be if you could read people's minds so that you could influence them. Again, in a constructive way, not a manipulative way. The chapter on empathy talks about how to do that. So we have to learn our strengths, we have to learn our weaknesses, and then we have to understand how to have the right behavior to maximize all the talents and all the experiences we have, and it's ever-changing. 
Exactly. Exactly. It all builds on itself. So the assumptions, as I mentioned earlier, are that you're technically competent and also that you do know your strengths and weaknesses. And if you don't, the first chapter addresses self-awareness and techniques for increasing self-awareness. Then the chapter on self-control builds on that. Once you know what you're like and how you are being perceived, you can control the image that you project. The third chapter is on empathy, which teaches people, including the millennials, how to get into other people's brain and to figure out what's going to motivate them and how you can lead them most effectively. There's a misconception that effective empathy is treating people the way you want to be treated, and it's not about that at all. Empathy is about treating people the way they would want to be treated. I've had clients who, who would tell me with very good intention, well, if it were me, I would blank. And, it's, and I would reply, it's not about you. Your constituents may have different values, different preferences, and are motivated in different ways than you are. It is incumbent upon you as a leader to figure out what motivates them and to read their minds and their body language and to influence them and inspire them in a way that is very individual. That's really good empathy. Oftentimes we think of a leader as being this tough, really confident lady man who who can just stand in front of people and express themselves in the strongest way and get their point across and make things happen. But you talk about humility. I mean, that just doesn't seem to fit. Yes. Time and time again, research shows that the most humble leaders are the most effective ones. And what I mean by humility is the ability to admit that you don't have all the answers. And it's counterintuitive, but very effective leaders are supremely self-confident. And in being self-confident, they are showing their humility. Humility is a measure of character that differentiates great leaders from the rest, in my opinion. And very arrogant people, the ones you were describing, tend to be super independent and want to go it alone and take the credit for things, whereas the humble people share credit, take the blame, acknowledge when they don't know something, they're relatively modest. They're not doormats. So we're not talking about subservience. We're talking about pure humility that is extremely attractive to other people. It's human nature. And at times, a leader, as you describe, the most effective leader, you have to perform, you have to become an actor. Yes, exactly. So the beginning of the book... We talk about the behavior model, and at the end of the book, we talk about acting. Through years and years of coaching people and working in the corporate environment, I noticed that some of the best leaders are superb actors. And I don't mean they're disingenuous and they're putting on a play or they're, in a, they're acting like in a movie all the time. They just know how to project. Just like an actor, great leader is aware of the way they're projecting to other people. They can modulate their voice and their communication, which is analogous to script. They have a wardrobe that they wear every day. They have a brand, which is like a costume. They know what their plot is, which is really their work environment, the, the situation. So there are lots of analogies to acting. And when I'm coaching somebody who's having trouble adapting to different situations, I tell them to imagine different persona that is required in each setting. Every time somebody changes an audience, they're changing roles. So for example, you'll have an executive who has a board meeting in the morning, 
walks out, walks down the hall, and says hi to people in the hallway. That's a different role. It requires a different persona. Walks onto a shop floor to talk to people, different persona. Every time they're switching settings, they're, they need to think about what they want to project. And there are, again, tips in the back of the book on how to act like a great leader. Now, there is an assumption here that you are a good person also, that you are coming across as genuine. These are tips and helpful hints to enhance what some leaders already have but have not been able to articulate or project well. We've been listening to Paulette Ashlyn. She is the author of her book, Leading the Way, Behaviors That Drive Success. Paulette, tell us the best way to get your book. It is available at iUniverse.com, Amazon.com, and BarnesandNoble.com. Thank you so much, Paulette, for joining us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you, Steve. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors, all quilters just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The title of the book is Newsroom Buddies, a working friendship at United Press International, co-authored by authors Sandy Latimer and John Cady. Joining me today on the program is author Sandy Latimer. Welcome to the program, Sandy. Hi, how's everybody doing today? Great, thank you for asking. It's a pleasure to visit with you. Your book follows an interesting format. It's not like most books in the marketplace. It's sort of like a diary. Take a moment and share with my listeners what the title Newsroom Buddies in Bodies for You, and what, what does it mean? Well, I had attended a lecture by Jeffrey Zaslow, and he was talking about having written the book the girls from Ames, and he mm-hmm. uh, mentioned that men do not have the relationship that women do, and something struck me. Uh, geez, my ex-boss, the gentleman I worked with, worked for for some 22 years, had just called me before I left for the program, and I'm thinking, gee. John and I have been friends for 42 years. We worked together, and then even after we left the company, went different ways, we still stayed in touch, and we lived in the same zip code, and we were going to a writer's group together. And I'm thinking, here is a relationship 
that not many people have. So I approached John and said, can we do this? And he says, when do you want to get started? And uh-huh. I whipped out the um, laptop and, and we started. And we're telling stories of how we work together, covering stories that were important and that people recognize, and how we did this in a busy newsroom. And your friendship goes back, at least in a working environment, uh, in the 1960s, uh, if I'm understanding it correctly. Well, he called me in 1967. I was working at a radio station in Delaware, Ohio, as news director, and I was following a story, and I was calling UPI uh, every day with the updates on the story. And one evening, I got hold of a gentleman, and I was very surprised that he was able to spell and pronounce my name. My maiden name was Gould, and I struggled with this all through my life. Mm-hmm. If people saw it in print, they couldn't pronounce it, and if, they, if it was pronounced, they couldn't spell it. And he could do both, and I was very surprised. And he said, yes, I live on a street by that name. And I said, well, my great-grandfather lived in that area, and that street was named for him. Wow. And I say, well, there's my 15 seconds of fame, and never gave it another thought. That was on a Friday night, and on Monday, John Cady called me and says, I want you to come to work for me. And that was the start of our 42-year, well, almost a 45-year friendship. Phenomenal. And and it's interesting how those connections uh, come together sometime in, in successful people's lives. And I would call you a successful individual. Thank you. Yes. Uh, you, you have also broken this down into three books, uh, book one, book two, and book three. Not that that's super complicated, but why did you choose to, to separate it as, as such? The first part, book one, is the period of time from when John called me and said he wanted me to come to work for him until the day that I started at UPI. And Hmm. this is all in the Columbus, Ohio Bureau. Part two is when I started to work there up until the day that I left to seek another job. And part three is... The from that period on until uh, John passed away as I was editing the book, and I waited until after his memorial service and wrote a final chapter. So that's how it's divided. The stories in book one, uh, how would you describe, first of all, how did you remember the contents of the book, the, the stories that you have shared with John, and how did that come together? How was it possible to, uh, did you keep a, a diary? Did you keep a journal? How did that, uh, how was that possible? Some of the things that we did and, and stories that the two of us wrote were quite outstanding and that stories that we told over and over and it was just putting stories on paper before we forgot them. And this is important, not only in this book, but it's important in real life because a lot of people do not know an ancestor 
some children do not know past their grandparents, and their great-grandparents or somebody back that far may have been a successful person, a, a great inventor or somebody, something like this, and a lot of times today's kids don't don't know this. And it's a good thing to put these stories on paper before we forget them. And that's just what we did. That's phenomenal advice. In fact, I'm not a kid, but uh, I don't remember a whole lot. In fact, if my spouse uh, asked me a question from last week, I don't remember what day, what month, what the story was about. Uh, I am uh, one of those uh, creatives who uh, looks forward but not backward too well. Uh, of the stories, what do you think is the most interesting that you enjoyed uh, recounting once again? I think the stories that I put in there are some of my favorites. Um, the, how we covered, say, the uh, Jock Yablonski killings. He was uh, running for president of the United Mine Workers, and right. he, his wife, and daughter were shot to death. Um, around New Year's Eve on 69. And Ohio is a great coal mining state, especially in southeast Ohio. In southeast Ohio, the West Virginia panhandle and western Pennsylvania is all this coal mining. And John grew up in West Virginia in the coal mines, so he knows that. And we wrote about that. We talked about this. This is one of those stories that we said we're going to be writing forever, just like the Kent State shootings. This is something we're going to write forever. And then I had the opportunity to do a lot of enterprise stories, and those those stick in my mind because I worked so hard on them. For instance, when I interviewed wives and girlfriends, of athletes and coaches. That was the time that Jeff Torborg, manager of the Cleveland Indians, was on the hot seat. I had interviewed his wife. The story was ready to go and be transmitted nationally out of New York. And the morning we were going to send it to New York was the morning I learned that Jeff Torborg had been fired. And I made a mad dash into the office and got hold of the Indians, explained my situation. They immediately transferred me over to Susie at the hotel, and I re-interviewed Susie Torborg and rewrote the whole story and still got it to New York on time. Wow. And then the other part of that story, it was a three-part feature story, and the two parts had run. The third one was going to be running the next day. Well, that was at the time when Thurman Munson's plane crashed in flames at the Akron-Canton Airport, and he was killed. And I think, oh, my gosh, uh, my story is supposed to run on sports pages. Is there going to be room for it with the regular sports and now Thurman Munson's accident? And I was really surprised that uh, sports pages covered Thurman Munson, and then had room for my third story. I had had gone through all kinds of anxieties and even shed a few tears. Mm. These are remarkable stories. It's an anthology of the history of uh, of at least your time at UPI. Is Is there more to the stories in the book than what perhaps appeared in print? Well, 
we tried to put it together. It's written in alternating chapters as I write about how we covered a particular story. John writes about how he handled it as a manager, Mm. as the bureau manager and head of the office. And then we also got into the situation where the company was sold and the headquarters move and the president's office becomes a revolving door. And as I'm trying to tell the story of how we did some enterprising work, he's writing a chapter about what's going on behind the scenes and how how the tension is that there's layoffs. You don't know if you're going to make it through the next payroll. The time that they floated loans to meet the payroll, uh, and even when we had to take a 35% pay cut after the company, the people who were still left there had voted, yes, we're going to keep the company going, yes, we will take a 35% pay cut. And there was a pretty big exodus at that time. In fact, a lot of people, I think, were waiting to see the vote, and I know I was, because the day after the vote was announced, I was offered another job. That's amazing. You have, uh, in the 60 chapters that are shared in your book, you have um, one that caught my attention, Chapter 54, My Turn in the Legislature. Is that a personal story? Uh, Well, all these stories are personal, uh, because it's, I wrote this story. This is how I dug up the information for this story. And we had a one-person in the state house across the street, but every year a different person went in to be an assistant over there. So that made two people in the state house, and at that time it was my turn to go over, and I was so excited because I got to work in a different location, and there's so much going on that affects everybody. And by working in the state house, I found an opportunity of writing stories the way they affect people. Mm. Is is your approach in this book, are there any stories that you would call lighthearted, or are they all hard news? Well, my feature stories are not really hard news. Like the time that um, one of the editors of a newspaper called me, in fact, it was the newspaper where I cut my teeth on journalism, and I was writing for that paper at the same time that guy was delivering papers, so we knew each other pretty well over the years. And he called and was talking to me about a particular person that I knew in that back in my hometown, and he said something about his son is the Ohio Teacher of the Year, and they're all going to Washington on a certain date. And he says, uh, I think he's the National Teacher of the Year. He said, can you go interviewing because he teaches down close to where you live. So, yes, I will go. I will go interview this young man. Uh, anybody younger than me, I call a young man. <laughs> yeah, right. So, um, I made the appointment to, and went to interview him, found out he went to school with my brother. So 
we had that much more in common. And I had written the story as a, a sidebar to what would be the national story on naming the national teacher of the year. And true, yes, he did get national teacher of the year. So when they're moving the national teacher of the year story out of New York, I was had my Ohio sidebar ready to go right after that. And um, I was I was very proud of having done that, and it looked nice. And this is the way that news should be covered. You have your major story, and then you have your local sidebar, and you localize the story. Well, about two or three weeks later, the opposition, my big opponent, Associated Press, did their story, and then goes the the salesperson from AP goes to show this particular editor, look, we did a story on somebody from your town. Well, the editor pulls out a newspaper and says, yes, and look what UPI did the <laughs> day of the national story. Here comes the local story right beside it. Fabulous. And, you know, the AP guy walks out and, you know, well, score one for UPI. Wow, that's there's some fascinating stories in your in your uh, recounting of history, and and uh, I'm wondering what is the the general reason for writing this. I'm 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 sure it was to share your your history newsroom buddies. That's a, that's a wonderful title for a book, but is there something else that you wanted to pass along? Well, I I had started this on the idea of male friendship, how John and I were friends, uh, he at one, he and I at one time lived a football field apart, wow. and I could stick my head out my living room window and watch his kids on the playground. We would share rides. Uh, he would come over, or he would holler across the driveway and say, hey, don't, don't go yet, I'm, I'm not ready, and he, mm. would, he and I would go to work together. He made up the schedule so he could schedule me on days that he worked, and um, we uh, would share last night's leftovers. Uh, he would get off. We would get off work at three o'clock in the afternoon. He'd come home, start dinner before his wife got home, and what was left over, he would wrap it up in aluminum foil and bring it to work the next day, and. We would have that for breakfast. Oh my. You know, we wouldn't we wouldn't bother with the uh, coffee and donuts. We would have perhaps stuffed zucchini or leftover shrimp creole <laughs> or whatever. And uh, then on Saturdays, uh, when there was there was a different crew working almost every Saturday, and we would plan menus around who was working because downtown there were no restaurants open on Saturday. So we would do our own cooking, and when I worked, everybody knew that I would bring Swedish meatballs to work, and that recipe is included in the back of the book. Oh, great idea. The The book is uh, a fascinating read because of uh, the coverage of history and also the point in time because you have referenced it in your, in your stories. Uh, where do people get a copy of Newsroom Buddies? They can get it from the publisher, iUniverse. 
It's also available on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and I think um, there are a couple other small distributors that anybody Googling books by Sandy Latimer, and that Sandy with an I and Latimer with one T, and they can uh, find it in various places. Sandy, do you have a web page also that people can connect with you? I have um, a generic web page because I do a lot of writing, and this one is Sandy Latimer. That's S A N D I L A T I M E R hyphen com C O M dot webs W E B S dot com. There is no uh, triple W at the beginning of that. No triple W. All right. And uh, listeners, if you are wanting to get this on a local level and uh, can't find it, you can ask your local bookseller. They can order it in for you. Yes. And my email address is on my webpage, so I enjoy comments from anybody. If you read the book, and I appreciate your putting uh, a review on the site where you purchased the book. Great, Sandy. Sandy, thank you for sharing your story. Again, the title of the book is Newsroom Buddies, a working friendship at United Press International. My guest, Sandy Latimer, and stories also by John Cady. Thank you for joining me today and sharing your story. Thank you. My pleasure for iUniverse. This is just J. Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. When your focus is to lose weight or maintain your present weight, exercising effectively to burn the most calories is crucial. You want to give yourself every advantage to burn as many calories as possible. One good tip is to do your strength training exercises standing up so you can keep your heart rate up Another tip is to perform multi-joint exercises when you can. For example, as you're doing a forward lunge, add bicep curls while you're coming up from the lunge. Another example is to execute a wide squat. And as you're coming up from the squat, perform a shoulder press. By doing these multi-joint exercises, you're putting more demands on your body, keeping your heart rate up, and working more muscles at the same time. The goal is to burn the most calories during that workout. I'm Annette Hammond. To hear other fitness and weight loss tips, visit our website at AnnetteHammond.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio. The title of the book, Tatiana's Day, and the author is Katia Perova, and Katia joins us now. All the way from England on iUniverse Radio, hello, Katia. Hello, Steve. Well, great to have you with us, Katia. What an incredible story, Tatiana's day, because it's a love story, but in the process of this love story, you're taking us back to really the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, from the time period about 1990, 1994. But again, it's mainly a love story, why did you do this? Now, you are Russian-born. 
Yes, I am. I was born and raised in Moscow, and I've lived through uh, those times uh, in Moscow. Just a few years back, it occurred to me that I felt it was very important to tell the story of my generation, actually, of the people who lived through those times, like you mentioned, incredibly important historical times of the collapse of the whole system, the country. But still, yet, at the same time, we were young, we were falling in love, like my characters, and life sort of was going on. So I just felt that, that I wanted to tell that story, and most importantly, in English, for sort of broader reading audiences around the world. Well, I'm sure your writing is as good as your English, so <laughs> you, it, it's a, an exciting, exciting experience for you to share this. And at that time, really, as you have shared with me, every day the people woke up, they didn't know what was going to happen that day. Exactly. And you see, it also depends on from what perspective you look at it. For the generation of our parents, grandparents, they were really, really worrying, unstable times. Probably for young generation, people like me, some of us, they were exciting times because actually, yes, we didn't know what was going to happen, but we saw endless opportunities in that. And many of representatives of my generation did take those opportunities. So this new class of people emerging called New Russians, and you're probably very well aware of uh, them coming sort of, and they're quite charismatic and powerful. They came from this exciting time when they were given that opportunity sort of to um, practically overnight to become somebody. So that these were the times. And to put it into perspective, and I know you are humbled by this association, but it's a contemporary, modern-day Dr. Shivago approach to that time. Yes, as you said, really humbling, really thank you so much for even pronouncing uh, <laughs> sort of my work in the same lines as the, uh, Boris Pasternak's great novel. But yes, in the, uh, in the heart of my book, it is, it is a love story, and probably at the same time as much as it is a love story it's coming of age story because that very important development of the central character Tatiana from shy studious student girl into uh, a wife of a rich powerful business businessman and sort of her personal journey that's the driving force of the novel so it's a love story coming of age story finding yourself story at the same time. And a turbulent love story. Yes, it's a turbulent, not necessarily a happy story. So every love story begins very happily. In this, in this particular instance, the marriage followed and it wasn't particularly a happy marriage. So yes, turbulent and unhappy. So tell us a little bit more about Tatiana. What makes her tick? Tatiana, my main character, is, like I said, a shy, studious uh, student girl. So the significance of the title, uh, obviously it's the main character's name, but for Russian readers, they will see immediately what it means. Tatiana's day, it's the day of the Saint Tatiana that falls on 25th of January. And in Russia, it is a national student's day. So all students celebrate. It's usually the end of the winter exams, 
and uh, Saint Tatiana was a patron saint of all students. So, in this sense, Tatiana and Oleg are kind of a eternal students, if you wish. So they're students when they meet, but also they're students in life because they're learning about life, about love, and about each other. So in Tatiana, Tatiana's progress from this kind of shy and studious girl who is suddenly picked up by this very charismatic and most popular guy on the campus. So he chooses to invite her to a party and they start going out together and she still can't believe why he chooses her. The development of their relationship over the years, she still doubts even after four or five years with him. Am I enough for him? Why is he with me? So it's a, it's a character that's, that, that has a lot of self-doubts, but she has to uh, grow up on all levels you know, within the novel. And it's just not an ordinary first date. It's an incredible first date. Yes, I think that the first date scene is is is, is I can't, can't sing my own praise, but I think it's quite memorable. It's a definitely the most memorable, one of the most memorable probably first dates anybody could be invited to. So Oleg invites her. Uh, as a surprise, she doesn't even know, she doesn't suspect she's going there. He asks her to uh, take a swimsuit with her, and she's wondering why, because outside it's uh, about zero Fahrenheit, you know, which is about minus 17, 18 in Celsius, snow falling, it's middle of winter, and he takes her to your Olympic swimming pool, which is an open-air swimming pool. He's very resourceful, and he sneaks in. They have a private sort of midnight swim under the falling snow, which is... I think, quite romantic and uh, rather special. And very unforgettable, no doubt. Thank you. (laughs) And, of course, Tatiana is just captivated by Oleg. Now, tell us about this uh, amazing man, young man at this time, but he's got big ambitions. He certainly does. Oleg, as she uh, discovers, uh, he uh, comes from a small Siberian town, from the family of academics. Coming to Moscow as kind of a, uh, probably as a teenager, he was teased for his accent, not really accepted socially, but then he made sure that he fits in and becomes very popular. Then he enters the army, he volunteers, he wants to go to Afghanistan. Many Russian young men at the time, because the war in Afghanistan was still going on, they, uh, they, they did volunteer to just sort of to become heroes, you know, as young men sometimes do. So he doesn't quite end up in Afghanistan, but his army ordeal, which Tatiana also learns about, uh, is, is quite significant too. He, he barely survives in the army. And then he returns and enters the university. Obviously, now he is uh, a bit older, more experienced than many uh, young people around him, and he is very quickly becomes very, very popular. So that's when they meet. And then she discovers he always has some cash in his pockets, and she discovers he actually plays cards, mainly preference, uh, but he has a genius partner, so they cheat uh, people. So he... he always has cash and he's 
real ambition is, and he tells her, I will never be poor. I will never go by public transport. Very soon, I will have an American limousine. That's the dream car for him. And I'll be driven. You know, maybe as crazy as it sounds, he achieves it within very uh, sort of just a few years because he has enough charisma and drive in him to do just that. And he becomes one of the first... Uh, sort of pioneers of the uh, television advertising business because in Soviet Union there were literally no advertising as industry it was all kind of very very poor and state controlled then this whole new industry uh, appeared the TV adverts was such novelty that people actually were waiting for advert breaks you know that you know, in, the, in the West it's kind of the opposite when we watch an interesting show it's like oh no uh, uh, ads again but in the, Soviet, in the in Russia at the time it was the other way around people were waiting to watch the ads because they were so new and so sparkly so interesting so and Oleg does that so he invo- he gets involved in that industry but she is afraid that he is playing with danger definitely so early days many business so there is, in, in, in Russia at the time, the, the things were quite dangerous and uncertain because very often the competition in business were dealt with just, you know, just people got killed. You know, you could always order your competitor to be killed or somebody who stands on your way. At some point, Oleg's partner dies under very unclear circumstances. He's not shot, but he dies in the car crash. And Tatiana begins to actually question her husband's moral limits and how far he's prepared to go to become even more powerful, even more rich. So, But that's, that was the story of the time. And throughout all of this, does their love even stand a chance to make it? That's right. And also with the wealth that's growing so rapidly and they suddenly they can afford so many things but so she begins to discover that probably she is not the only woman in his life because he probably can have more than one she gives him sort of benefit of the doubt every now and then but yes that that there is that that there is this moral issue of uh, constant temptation that comes with excess and very, you know, quick excess of everything. So everything comes sort of thrown into the scene, you know, diamonds, bodyguards, drugs, women. So the whole moral compass and the old values of the old Russia and, of course, you know, throughout the Soviet Union... Uh, some of that may have been tradition, but that's kind of all disappeared. That's right. I've been thinking about it. I think, what I, how can I describe this generation and probably my generation, is that we had a very kind of Soviet childhood. We were Soviet children. And then, one, all of a sudden, we just woke up into the capitalist adulthood and completely bypassing youth. Young people of Russia and and that particular generation because of the situation, because of what happened, the old morals and Soviet slogans, they simply just didn't work. They didn't fit anywhere with the, you know, uh, democratic society we believed we were building with a new capitalism sort of, you know, uh, economic uh, developments. They just didn't fit anywhere. But, and so 
they couldn't listen anymore to their parents or grandparents. And at the same time, that was the interesting thing, and I think that's quite, Russia was probably a unique country in that, that the older generation, they were still relying on the state salaries of pensions, you know, like parents and grandparents, with all the economic changes and devaluation, monetary devaluations, they became rather poor. They couldn't support their youth anymore. So it very quickly became in reverse that young people like Oleg, he is supporting his parents, and it's clearly that he's probably helping Tatiana's grandmother. So they were financially supporting the older generation. So it's kind of in reverse. But at the same time, like you said, the moral compass and the moral basis of the society were really shaken. Right and wrong, everything became quite muzzled up. I guess this is a generation that completely bypassed the youth, that time of life when you're actually figuring out who you are, what are your morals, you know, where are you heading. They just didn't have that. Yeah, so the, the, conse- the consequences were that rather tragic in many cases. A turbulent love story amidst turbulent times, changes in the great nation of Russia coming out of the collapse of the Soviet Union. Tatiana's Day, and we've been talking to Katya Perova. She is the author. Any closing thoughts, Katya? I'm just hoping that my book can reach many people, many readers who are interested in what we were just uh, saying in the Russian recent history, but also who are just interested in just a good story, a love story or coming-of-age stories. Thank you very much for having me. And what's the best way to get your book? So at the moment, my book is available on iUniverse Store and all Amazon sites and also Barnes & Noble's. Again, everyone, the title of the book, Tatiana's Day. Katia Perova, thank you so much for joining us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.